0: Ravel and Debussy went to the Paris Conservatory at a relatively young age, Debussy at 10, and Ravel at 14. Ironically, neither of these young musicians were well-regarded at the Conservatory, and yet both are now considered two of the greatest French composers. Even during their lifetimes, Ravel was considered the best living French composer, and both were influencers, to borrow the contemporary designation. They changed art and the world. Welcome back to Accelerando. I'm Paula Tuttle this week, we're talking about a movement in music, art, and literature called symbolism. Maybe you've heard of Debussy and Ravel referred to as impressionists, but actually they both disliked the term, even though that one stuck. The painter Claude Monet can be blamed. It was an impulsive title he gave to one of his paintings of the Le Havre Report. In 1874, to be exact, he was talking to a critic named Louis Leroy. And Leroy asked Monet to provide a name for the catalog he was publishing. And Monet said, put impression. Today we call a trend impressionism. But these Impressionists called themselves Symbolists. They were writers, painters, and composers. They were all trying to harness the forces of creativity. And in the process, they abandoned traditional structures. No wonder the Paris Conservatory disapproved of Debussy and Ravel. Maybe the invention of the phonograph and the photograph play a part in this artistic trend both a camera and record player, they catch a single moment. The camera was invented in 1816 by another Frenchman named Joseph Niepce. Up until then, portraits were a way to memorialize people and in paintings to memorialize events. So making a portrait that looked exactly like a person was no longer necessary. If a camera could do it, why paint it? Then the phonograph was invented in 1877 just two years after Ravel was born. And Debussy was 12 years old when it was invented. But it would be a long time, at least 50 years, before the music industry fully harnessed the record as a tool. Maybe the camera set the artists free. The paintings didn't need to be static anymore. Monet tried to make the paintings come to life. Less like a picture, more like a movie. There was a bookshop in Paris called L'Art Dependant, the independent art, where the symbolists congregated. The poet Stéphane Marlamet hung out there, as did Debussy. Marlamet wrote a poem called The Afternoon of a Faun, which Debussy used in his famed tone poem. Debussy's favorite painter also hung around the bookstore, Gustave Moreau. Moreau was the greatest influencer in the visual realm. He did a lot of history paintings, allegorical scenes that were biblical and otherwise, but he brought a sense of movement and an air of mystery that was new and inspiring to a style that we saw in painting for centuries. He had one foot in each era, and he abhorred the term Impressionism. Moreau's students include Henri Matisse, and he was a mentor to Edouard Degas. His relationship with Degas cooled when the latter joined the Impressionist movement. Symbolism is hard to nail down. Many of the Impressionist artists we know by name regarded themselves as symbolists and didn't like or want to be called Impressionists. Symbolism represents a search for artistic language liberated from the formal techniques and liberated is a key verb here. So the term alchemy turns up a lot, turning base metals into precious ones. Symbolists like to think of themselves converting everyday sounds or visions into something glorious and sensual. Intensely aware of mystery, as the poet Baudelaire described it, he also termed the idea of modernity One of the notable works by Baudelaire was his translations of Edgar Allan Poe into French. And the symbolists, they all loved Edgar Allan Poe. They loved his mysteries, and mystery was one of the main components of symbolism. So imagine the alchemist turning iron into gold. That's essentially how the symbolists regarded their art. Mysterious, hidden correspondences, dream states... Sounds ring out of text as in music. Colors speak. Perfumes tell a story. You get the picture. It's a great crossover of all the senses. And in the eyes of the symbolists, Debussy was regarded as a musical hero. Like the mythical alchemists, he turned iron into gold. Debussy sought to convert musical sounds into agents of transcendence. The idea that certain tones intermingled like a myriad of fragrances was also found in early French music, the music of Couperin and Rameau. So we see Liszt, Ravel, and Debussy drawing upon those two French Baroque composers. Liszt, and Debussy went on to invent new techniques like rootless chords or harmonies and using whole-tone scales to project a sense of free-floating without a tonic necessarily. Russian composers and poets were also part of this symbolist movement. Alexander Scriabin was described by Russian poet Konstantin Balmont in this way, The singing of the falling moon, starlight in music, a flame's movement, a burst of sunlight, the cry of the soul. Scriabin was a mystic, and he thought in terms of a color wheel. C was red, E was blue, etc. At the time of his death, he was working on a piece called Mysterium, a multimedia work that was to include fanciful notions like bells suspended from clouds, and he believed that the premier performance would actually usher in the messianic age. Maybe he was a bit of a nut, but his Prometheus chord, or sometimes just called the Mystic chord, is studied by music students and is popular with jazz musicians. The Prometheus chord is a six-note chord. If rooted on C, you have F-sharp, B-flat, E, A, and D. And it can be spelled in different ways, but you generally are using a whole-tone scale. Scriabin called it the Pleroma Chord, referring to a theological divine power. But the term Prometheus was the one that stuck. It was termed by a Russian music theorist after Scriabin's use of it in Prometheus, The Poem of Fire. At the World's Fair in Paris in 1889, Debussy and Ravel encountered music of the Indonesian gamelan. And these were mallet instruments like xylophones and other percussive instruments predominantly, but it also used bamboo flutes and a few stringed instruments. Basically, it bolstered their interest in writing music with little or no harmonic direction. Debussy liked to refer to the gamelan music, saying it neutralized the gravitational pull found in Western music. He was referring to the dominant tonic, the five going to the one, and all the other harmonic forces. He called them vain ghosts. He particularly liked the musical fog that the instruments made. Some of the bells were slightly out of tune, and that was all part of the plan. Indistinct pitches blurring the landscape, just like an Impressionist painting. The pentatonic scale was another facet absorbed by the gamelan music. At this time emerged a group of painters. They billed themselves as the Impressionist and Synthesis group, and they were actually banned from the World's Fair. So during the summer of 1889... Paul Gauguin and his colleagues exhibited their works at Volpini's Café des Arts on the Champ de mars That 1889 fair was one of the greatest melting pots of world music and culture. It's also where Thomas Edison displayed his new phonograph. Also, Marie Antoinette's piano. The Eiffel Tower was brand new, one of the entranceways to the fair. 30 million visitors came to that fair, and it was like a walled city with displays from Japan, Greece, Argentina, and music from everywhere. The fascination of multicultural otherness saturated the atmosphere, although even Paris wasn't quite ready for the belly dancers of Egypt. Some embraced the expressive voluptuousness. Others were morally alarmed. Controversies brooded every level of the fair. But our heroes, Ravel and Debussy, they were in heaven. Some of the Javanese gamelan musicians, they stayed on in Paris after the fair was over. And music was never to be the same. We see the influence of the gamelan in Debussy's 10th Prelude for Piano. Debussy puts the titles at the end of the pieces as an afterthought because he didn't think of the subject being a thing. But I'll tell you, it's called The Sunken Cathedral. One of Debussy's very last compositions, the cello sonata, he left the title off completely and it was called Pierrot in the Moonlight. So maybe next time you hear it, you'll hear that in the music. A guitar tuning up, a string breaking. Enjoy. When it comes to innovation in music, Debussy and his cohorts were happy to fly in the face of tradition, even if it meant they were disdained by their schools and their teachers. In the end, they were embraced by the world, We need that kind of creativity. It gives us all inspiration. Their music led to all kinds of new ideas, and ideas are the currency of our time. And continuing in the French vein, Make sure you tune in next week. I'll be talking to some musicians that are starting a really nice festival in France. Keep supporting live music. Have a great week, and I'll see you next time.